Father, it is during these moments before I begin to preach that I am reminded how insufficient I am for the task. And I pray, Father, that as we meet together this morning and as I speak, I pray that Your Word would ring true in our hearts through Your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that You would help us as we grapple with the issues that are currently happening in our own culture. Father, that we would not dismiss them as though they're unimportant, but that we would also not elevate them as though they are most important. But that we would see them in light of Your Word. And that we would live in light of the gospel. God, help us today as we speak about the subject of marriage. That we would see how vital our understanding of marriage is. And how marriage itself is an institution created by you that honors you. And that reveals the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless this time. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We look at the subject of marriage today, the subversive attacks of our culture against marriage runs much further back than simply this last week in regards to the Supreme Court decision. Over the past 40 years, marriage in the United States has been in a steady decline. And just a couple of statistics that I thought was gripping that I wanted to share with you. The divorce rate is nearly twice the rate it was in 1960. The divorce rate is nearly twice the rate it was in 1960. In 1970, 89% of all births were were to married parents. But today, only 60% of those births are. The most telling statistic, though, is over 72% of American adults were married in 1960, but only 50% are married in 2008. And there's this increasing wariness or pessimism of our culture toward the idea of marriage. And this is especially prevalent among younger people. Younger people uh, believe that the chances of them finding the person that they want to be married to and getting married and then having a happy marriage, they believe that's very unlikely for them. And since the 1960s, our culture has shifted from a monogamous relationship rooted in the context of marriage it's it's shifted to think that that kind of relationship is somehow boring, uninviting, sexually unfulfilling. And just about every sitcom that you look at on TV has some kind of marriage, but that marriage is one that is of dysfunction. It's a marriage that shows how uh, ignorant the husband is or foolish or how controlling and uh, obtuse the wife is. And you have these pictures of marriage and what our culture is telling us is that marriage really isn't that great. Marriage really isn't that wonderful. In fact, the popular comedian, comedian Chris Rock said this. He said, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? And it seems as though our culture is saying that there's two options. You can either be single and unhappy or you can be married and unhappy. And so, as a result, what many people in our own culture in the last two decades have attempted to do is somehow find a middle road. So instead of being single and lonely, instead of being married and unhappy, let's find that single road where we can be sexually satisfied by living with someone, but at the same time not be married to them so that all of the baggage 
baggage that somehow is supposed to come with marriage will not find us. And so we have this new culture of people living together before they get married. And that never really works out either. The majority of people who live together prior to marriage and then are married, the majority of those end in divorce as well. In the year 2000, the divorce rate in the United States was almost 50% of all marriages. And in 2011, when we looked at the statistics again, uh, the divorce rate had gone down. It was decreasing from 50% down to 40%. And many of us, we look at those numbers and we want to champion those numbers saying, well, that's great, 10% decline of divorce rate. But the reality is the amount of people that are getting married has also decreased. And so it has remained a constant. Marriage has been under attack for decades. From the attacks of feminism from the 1960s, which destabilized the home and destroyed God-given roles of husband and wife that are revealed in Scripture. From the escalation of a divorce culture which encourages people to find their own happiness, no matter what the cost, and no matter what God says. From the incredible convenience that we find right now today of pornography in our homes, at the click of a mouse it can be found. Or the convenience of prostitution in our own cities and human trafficking. And from now, what really just seems to be the norm of people living together in fornication outside the context of marriage. Marriage has been under attack for decades. It's not something that is new and it ought to not be something that's surprising to us. And in the last 40 years, we have seen our country's crumbling understanding of our cultural uh, view about what marriage really is. And this last week, the Supreme Court's decision to repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, DORMA, and to declare that the Proposition 8 in California was unconstitutional, only seems to act as another nail in the coffin of our American understanding of what marriage really is. The Supreme Court ruled on two monumental marriage cases this week, and the legal and cultural landscape of our country has now changed as a result. The court voted to strike down the Defense of Marriage Act and remand the decision of the Ninth Circuit in the Proposition 8 case. Proposition 8 was a ban in California against same-sex marriage. And both of those have now been removed. And even last night as I was looking at the news on my phone, the the, the city of San Francisco has just gone crazy. In fact, the places that are issuing marriage licenses are having to stay out open later. So because there are so many people lined up on the sidewalks to get their marriage licenses. The landscape of our country has changed. But unfortunately... The knee-jerk reaction of most Christians is one of three options. Either one, we become verbally abusive toward those who are gay and lesbian. And so we say things that are offensive and say things that are unloving and we're mean-spirited. Or we find ourselves looking at this cultural change and we find ourselves despairing, thinking that there is this slip and slide of slime as we're just rolling down into moral depravity and, and we begin to despair, wondering what is going to happen with our country. Everything that we used to think was right and true, all of these things are falling apart. Or we begin to find ourselves in agreement 
with what the culture is telling us about marriage, what marriage is and what marriage is not. But this morning as we look at this topic, I want us to see, I want us to understand that marriage is not defined by our culture. Marriage is not defined by our culture. Marriage is not defined by a political party. Marriage is not defined by a political entity. Marriage is not even defined by the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Marriage is defined by God. Marriage is the icon of Christ and the church. And it is an icon that was embedded in the created order itself. So that when marriage itself is attacked, the gospel of Jesus Christ is also under attack. And so this morning I want us to focus our attention on the subject of marriage. And I want to look to see what marriage is in the Scripture. And I believe that as we look at marriage, as it is defined by Scripture, we will see also what marriage is not. So the first principle that I want you to take home with you today is this. The purpose of marriage is to honor God. The purpose of marriage is to honor God. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin our reading in this section in verse 18. And you can remain seated. The Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him the helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field a name. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept... He took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. As we look at that text, the first thing that we should observe is that marriage is not ours to define. Marriage is not ours to define. We didn't create marriage. It wasn't... Uh, An institution that it was created by human beings, but it was created by God. And in the same way that an inventor has rights over his invention, whether it's through copyright or whatever it might be, God, the one who created marriage, also has the rights over definition. God is the one who exclusively has the right to define marriage. And marriage, because it was made by God, inherently honors God in its existence. It honors God. But there are several things that I want us to see about how God created marriage. God, first of all, created marriage to help Adam. Did you notice that? Look back there at verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God gave Adam a wife so that she could help him. 
so that she could assist him. It was, it was for his good that God gave Adam Eve. There was not a helper fit for Adam anywhere on the planet. And, and he goes through all of the animals, naming them, looking at them, examining them, and not one animal could serve as a compliment to him. Not one animal could serve as his companion. Every living creature was examined. Now what I find here that is interesting is this. God did not just simply give him another man as a companion. God didn't give him another man. Now if we didn't know the rest of the story, that might have just made sense. Adam needed a companion. He needed someone to do the work with him. He needed someone that maybe could communicate in the same fashion that he communicated. Someone that was strong as he was. Why not just give him a replica? But that's not at all what God does. What does God do? He gives to him something new. He gives to him a woman. One who would serve as the perfect complement, like cogs and a wheel. One who would be different and yet complementing the same things that Adam was lacking in. And in the context of marriage, God enables two people, a man and a woman, to come together and experience the most intimate of unions. It's a uniting of body and soul in covenant love before God. So the union that God creates in marriage is a union of help and complement. But also look at Adam's response. God creates marriage to help Adam. God creates marriage to bless as well. To bless as well. Did you notice what he says? His, look at Adam's response. He says, he looks out, he sees the woman, he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's almost as if he wakes up and then he sees this woman and he says, Oh my goodness, what I've been looking for all of my life, I finally found her. God chose to give a woman to Adam to bless him. So that he would find delight in her. This is the person that, the exact person that he was needing. Bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And I think that Adam, if he knew what Solomon was going to write later on in the Proverbs, he would have said it right here. He says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So God created marriage to bless it. Then finally we see here that God created marriage to fulfill his creation mandate. And this is really important. To this new couple that God has just brought together in matrimony, God says to them in Genesis chapter 1, He says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So it's within this union, this marriage that God gives this mandate to Adam and Eve that they were to create life like themselves. They were to have children and those children, they were to, they were to have children so that those children would be image bearers just like their parents were image bearers. And so that as they would go throughout the world having dominion over all the creation as God had given them dominion for his own glory, they were extending the glory of God. Across the world. So the purpose of marriage. Is rooted in the glory of God. 
God was the one who instituted marriage in the beginning and God is the one who created man and woman together for the purpose of reproduction and the fulfillment of His creation mandate. Namely, that His glory would be extended across the world as the waters cover the sea. So the purpose of marriage is to honor God. But the second thing I want you to notice is this. The meaning of marriage is to reveal the gospel. The meaning of marriage is to reveal the gospel. Now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5 we find one of the most commonly quoted passages of scripture in regards to marriage. And oftentimes I feel like we miss the point. Most of the time we're really concerned about who's submitting to who and who's leading who and we fail to see the point of the entire passage. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's look together at chapter 5 verse 22 down to verse 33. Paul writes and says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and his himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What we see from this passage is that every marriage makes a declaration about Jesus Christ and His church. Every marriage makes a declaration about Jesus Christ and His church. Some marriages honor Him and some marriages dishonor Him. But in the beginning of of all creation, we see from Genesis 1, even here Paul, he, he mentions, he quotes from Genesis, talking about the, uh, the, 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 the man and the wife cleaving to one another, this, this image is embedded within the created order itself. Marriage was created by God so that we might understand the relationship that Jesus has with His church. Friends, marriage in this passage is the illustration, not the other way around. Paul's not talking about Christ and the church and so he, or the marriage between man and woman so that he can then give an illustration about Christ and His church. No, it's the opposite. Marriage itself is the illustration that has walked through time that serves to point us as a signpost to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what God in His own divine mind embedded within the created order so that we might understand more fully how it is that you and I, we relate to God through Jesus Christ. Friends, when you think about your marriage, your marriage has more significance than simply how you treat your own spouse. It has eternal significance. It is an illustration 
Human marriages end, don't they? That's the way our vows work. Human marriages end in death. But the marriage of the Lamb to His bride, that will never, ever end. Our marriages only serve to point people to Jesus Christ. And so the way that we act toward those whom we're married to, well, it's a gospel issue. It's not simply about whether or not we're happy. Your marriage has more significant meaning than just your relationship with your spouse. Your marriage is ground zero for demonic warfare in the world. Have you ever wondered why being married to someone is so very hard sometimes? Well, it's because it's not just you two in the mix together. There are demonic warfare happening all around us. And the most specific place to do that is in the most significant location that we find a model of the gospel, a model of Christ and His church. And Satan knows that. And Satan sees all of these marriages out there and how they can be easily broken, how they can be tethered down by baggage and hurt feelings and statements that are being said. And he tempts us to wreck these marriages. And he tempts our culture to redefine what marriage ought to be and what it should look like. Marriage is ground zero for demonic warfare. There is no other institution established by God that better models the gospel of Jesus Christ than your marriage. That's why it's so very important. The reason that our culture has continually demeaned marriage is not simply because we're on a moral slip and slide. It's not simply because we're headed down declining in our moral values, but our culture itself is anti-Christ. Our culture is against Christ. And the redefinition of marriage as being a loose commitment between two people where it's just about convenience. And if that ever becomes where it's inconvenient, you end the marriage, that's antichrist. Or, or, or the idea of redefining marriage to be a union between, between two men or two women. These things are antichrist. These things are against Jesus. They are speaking falsely about who he is as a husband and about who we are as a church, as his bride. Wives, when you submit to your husband, it is as if you're standing as a representative for all of us. You are the one who is representing the church. And the way that you respond should be the way that all of us corporately respond to Jesus when he speaks. Your willingness to be submissive. It's not an issue of personality. It's an issue of cosmic identity. Who are you? Who are we in Christ? You're declaring to the powers of evil that the church of Jesus Christ follows her king and willingly submits to his loving leadership. That's what you're declaring when you submit to your husband as it is to Christ. Men, when you love your wives like Christ loved the church, you are representing the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If you speak harshly to your bride or you're impatient with her, you're you're calling Jesus Christ a liar as though he doesn't love his bride. If you act arrogantly and refuse to, to reconcile because you think your wife was the one who was in the wrong and not you, what you're saying is the cross never really happened. Because Jesus, I don't know if you remember this or not, but Jesus, he was the one that was in the right, not us. He was the one that was perfect. Did he go about declaring himself to be right and pompously waiting for us to come and apologize to him? No. What did he do? He died on a cross for our sins. 
He died so that we could be reconciled through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Men, when you love your wives like Christ loves us, you are declaring to Satan and to his minions that Jesus Christ reigns and that he will never give up on his bride. You're saying with every hug and every dirty diaper and every load of dishes and every affirming word and every loving touch that Jesus Christ loves his bride and that he will present her spotless and without blemish. What you're saying with your marriage is really important. Friends, what what does homosexual marriage say about the gospel? A marriage with two grooms says that Jesus could care less about his church. Doesn't need the church. Doesn't love the church. A marriage with two brides says we don't need Jesus at all. We don't need a Savior. We don't need one who is going to cleanse us from all of our sins. The symbol breaks down and the entire purpose of marriage is based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, there is great confusion about the meaning of marriage today. But it is not hidden from us. It's right here in the Word. The meaning of marriage is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because the gospel is quintessential to all of life then our understanding of marriage is very important. So as we think about marriage and we think about our own cultural context, we have to also understand that the defense of marriage itself must be done with truth and with love. Truth and love. The new president of our Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, this is a mouthful, President Russell Moore um, gave some very good recommendations for us. And I included that as a bulletin insert for you today. A couple of the responses, I just want to highlight two of those because I think they're really helpful for us as we think about what marriage is and then as we respond as a church to what is happening in our own culture. And the first is this, avoid anger, outrage, or despair. The purpose of marriage is to honor God and the meaning of marriage is to reveal the gospel of Jesus. And marriage has always been the union between a man and a woman and no declaration of the Supreme Court is going to change that. Friends, marriage is resilient and culture cannot change it. So don't become angry. Don't become despairing. And don't be outrageous. Because when we act like that, What it looks like to the world is that we are the people crying out because we're on the losing side. And we're not. We are not on the losing side. Jesus Christ is King. And we continually pray and wait for His kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And also, love your gay and lesbian neighbors. Love them. They're not a part of some huge evil conspiracy to take over the world. They're very much like all of us were apart from Jesus Christ. And they are attempting to find a way in the world that seems right to them. And as their neighbors, we are to love them. We are to love them as Christ loved us and model that kind of love so that our hope is that they repent of their sins. And turn to faith in Jesus Christ and be transformed by the power of God's Holy Spirit. 
So as we think about how as a church in the coming weeks, in the coming months, we begin to encounter various things that are difficult to talk about, difficult to think through, difficult to make decisions upon. I want to leave you with these words from the Apostle Paul from Ephesians 4. And let these be the things. This is the way that I want us to to follow suit in following after God, but doing so with truth and with love held together. Paul says, "Let, Let us no longer be like children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And let that be our attitude together. As we stand for what is true, but as we love the world around us in hopes of seeing them come to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.